If you're a guest with us today, we are in a series about mistaken identity. We've been talking about this for a couple of weeks now, and today we're going to talk about photo ID. There's an outline on the back of the bulletin you can follow along. We're meeting small groups tonight. We got a, off to a great start two weeks ago. We're going to continue that tonight. If you're not in a group, there's a group that meets in the chapel or just ask around. We'd love for you to come to one of ours that already uh, started. All of us have these IDs, school ID, work ID. Uh, driver's license, passport, you may have several. Most of them, there's a photo on there. And of those photos, usually we don't like them. They're not the most flattering picture. I did a quick Google search. I want to show you there are some people's photos that are quite interesting. Look at this one. This little man's name is covered up, but I'm going to call him Free Throw Freddy. He is that. Look at this next one. Guy's afraid of his own mascot. Look at this next one. There's Jessica. And the next one is our All-American. And then the next one, Mr. Kessler in a sombrero. <laughs> I don't know if that's legitimate or not. We'll leave it there. Look at this next one. The reason most guys don't wear turtlenecks. And then check out the Gagnon brothers. <laughs> Enough to make a mama proud, isn't it? And look at Gabe. This person is ninth grade, and then Gabe in 10th grade, and then Gabe in 11th grade, and then Gabe in 12th grade. <laughs> yeah, that's all I got. Actually, there's so much more, but we could have kept going and going and going. Just do a Google search sometime, and you'll be entertained with that. In our study, what we're going to talk about is how God pictures us, how God sees us, what's the image that comes to mind when we think of us. And so just a few thoughts to review for a moment. Why do we do what we do? Why do we say what we say? Why do we respond the way that we respond? We've been talking about this. In studying identity, we acknowledge that behavior follows identity. Now, we may focus on the rules and talk about the rules, but when push comes to shove, down deep in that moment of crisis, we make the choice and we do or say or respond because of what we believe, who we are. That's why when you see throughout the New Testament when the Holy Spirit is inspiring the writers like Paul in Ephesians, there's some things he needs to tell these Christians what to do. But first, he reminds them of who they are. We're talking about the hello I am, and we're filling in the blank. Today, we're filling in the blank of this photo ID, how does God see us? And one of the definitions we're using for identity comes from a book by David Lomas. I mentioned this last week that our identity is the truest thing about you. There may be a lot of true things about you, or maybe some things believed about you that aren't true. But your identity is the truest thing about you. And what Paul tells us in this book of Ephesians, if you are a Christian, the truest thing about you, remember what he said over and over again in the first chapter, is that you are in Christ so in this series, we're looking at some of these mistaken IDs, these fake IDs that either we offer up or others put on us. Because if you're a Christian, we need to realize we belong to God. We talked about this last week. He purchased us. So this photo ID idea is how do other people envision us? Because here's the point. 
When we think about that, when we're consumed by that, we're so aware of that, how other people see us, and we allow that to be how we define ourselves, how we identify ourselves, we are giving other people a tremendous amount of power over us because we're allowing their opinion to define us, to identify us. I think this is especially true with Facebook and Instagram. Some of you are already thinking about that. But this is not just because of Facebook or because of Instagram or any other social media. And it's not just 2019. I think this is a problem that has always been. It's always been a challenge. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. These are relatively new Christians. Less than 10 years old have they been following Christ. And so he's writing them saying, this is who you are in Christ. Now he's going to tell them what they need to do. That's the last part of the book. But he begins telling them who they are. So if you look at your study guide, there are some mistaken IDs for the Ephesians that they had to overcome. They had to make sure they identified that and recognized that. I'm not going to be defined that way. So if you fill in the blanks, here's the first one. And one mistaken idea is outsiders. Because in the church of Ephesus, most of them were not from a Jewish background. They were Gentiles. And because they were Gentile Christians and not Jewish Christians... They were viewed by the Jewish Christians as being outsiders because the Jews took a lot of pride in being a Jew. They were God's chosen people. They were special ones. Whether they act like it or not, whether they live lives of faith in God or not, they still took pride in being a Jew. So these Gentile believers were considered to be outsiders. And it's a harsh word, but I want to put it up there, illegitimate. Illegitimate children of God. That is how some of the Jews treated and made the Gentiles feel. So Paul addresses this, chapter 2, verse 11. And again, notice the identity language. We've been reading this a good bit. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, but what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Now these Gentile Christians needed to hear this. They needed to remember what Jesus did for them. But the Jews also needed to hear this. The Jews, the Jews need to be reminded these are not who the Gentiles are now. They're no longer outsiders. They are not illegitimate. They too are children of God. But the Gentiles... We're seen this way. It would be so easy for them to believe that way, to feel insecure about their status with God, to allow others to shape how they are seen. Well, another mistaken idea for the Ephesians is their citizenship, their community. Again, we talked about this. They're, being from, a, they're from a very prosperous city, a lot of pride that comes with that. But there's something else that comes with that, where they were and the time. Ephesus, if you remember the, your history, was a very pagan city. A lot of false gods, a lot of pagan worship, a lot of sexual practices that went along with that pagan worship. So when you became a Christian and started following Jesus, you would stand out just because of your choices, that you no longer did those things, or you chose not to participate in those things. So here's one way even the community kind of turned their back on them 
They called them atheists. Because the Ephesians believed in many gods. These Christians believed in the one true God. And not believing in the many, they were labeled as atheists. And again, a mistaken idea. It didn't fit, but that's how they were labeled by their community. Mistaken IDs can still be a factor today. So let me share a couple that might be a challenge for us. And this first one is a biggie. And that is desire. Desire. We're sometimes labeled, especially by our culture, by what we desire. First one I think of is maybe what you're thinking of is our sexual identity. We use that word, those phrases, I'm gay, I'm straight. And we put a, a label with that and we put an identity with that. And here's the truth of it. Both do that. Both are guilty of that. But here's the fact. That is not the truest thing about you. And think about that. When you allow what you like, what you prefer, what you want, what you desire to define you, you're giving a lot of power to desire. And that is only going to end up in a bad way. This could be an entire sermon. But notice when we do that, when we allow our desires to identify us, to give us an identity, we give that tremendous power over us. Because now it's not just what I prefer or what I like or what I desire. It is who I am. And when our, de our desires define us, we give incredible power to them. Well, here's another one. Mistakes. We talked about this a little bit last week. Our failures. We're seen by those. So we can't get past our past. And so we label ourselves as divorced or an addict or an ex-con. And we think, well, that's how people see me, so I might as well just act that way. And we can't get past our own past. Or another mistaken idea we talked about is abilities or successes. I was thinking about this, especially with the start of football. It's the 40-year-old dad who still sees himself on the football field. You know anybody like that? I've got a friend on Facebook every year. He posts his high school picture of him in his uniform. <laughs> every year. It's the mom who makes her daughter cheer because she was the cheerleader. It's the valedictorian or the CEO who just weaves that into the conversation to let you know who they are, who they were, their successes. We allow our ability, our talent to define us. That's how we want pick people to picture us when they think of us. Here's another mistake in identity. It's our DNA. It's our family. Some people will always see and try to la label you based on the family you're from. When C and I moved to Coleman, Alabama, it's a town a little bit smaller than uh, Columbia, maybe 10,000 less. And we were in a, I was in a small shop by myself one day downtown, and I was uh, talking with the shop owner, and we introduced ourselves, and when I told him I'm Randy Owens, he said, who's your daddy? I thought, well, you don't know him. He's not from here. But it's that part of, I want to identify you by your family. And that happens. It's just kind of the way we are as people, good or bad. People assume the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So people want to know, who's your family? And some of you may be living in this right now. You don't want to be your mom, but you're becoming your mom. Have you noticed that? And people reinforce it. You sound just like your mother. 
You act just like your mother. And so you just kind of, you just kind of accept it. It's kind of the label there. Or maybe you, you, you're that way with your dad. And it may not be bad. It, it might be good. Maybe you have a great mom and a great father. So some of that is the pressure to live up to that. So much so that it's kind of, that's your identity. And here's another mistaken idea, kind of related, and that is relationship. Do you remember, do you ever have somebody in your life who always had to have a girlfriend or a boyfriend? You know what I'm talking about? They always had a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And if they broke up, they had another one before the end of the month. It's like they had to have that relationship. People find their identity in their marital status. Apart from a husband or wife, they don't really know who they are. Maybe that's why some cringe when they've got to check that box single or divorced or widowed. And if you're not married, do people have that photo ID, that picture that somehow I'm, I'm less than? Is that how I'm seen? Now, parents, this can really be a challenge because some parents find their identity in their children. And when that happens, that makes them growing older more difficult. That makes them leaving home more painful. Children can find their identity in their parents. They become adults and they still can't make a decision without calling mom or dad because their identities are so intertwined. Now, relationships, especially marriage and family, should be a priority in a couple of chapters. Paul talks about that in chapters 5 and 6. But even these relationships are not the truest thing about you. There's an interesting passage in Hebrews 11. talks about Moses. Remember, Moses was brought up in the palace of Pharaoh. But in Hebrews 11, verse 24, it says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. When he was young, everybody said, That's who you are. That's where he lived. That was his upbringing. That's how he dressed. That's how he acted. That's the way he was educated. Somebody respects that's who he was. But by faith, he got to the point where he said he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. There's one more blank on your outline, but we're going to skip that and come back to it in a moment. So it brings up the question, how does God see us then? How does God picture us? What's our photo ID? When God thinks of us, what is the image that comes to mind? He wants us to understand our true identity. So in the book of Ephesians, these first three chapters, he gives us three photos, if you will, three pictures. So the first photo of you that he gives, he wants you to see yourself this way, because this is how God sees you, is I am adopted. So in chapter 1, I am adopted. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So forget about what other people think or what other people say, how other people have labeled you. If you are in Christ, you are adopted. It's how he sees us. Keep reading in verse 5. In love he predestined us for, here's that word, adoption, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God decided to adopt us. We are chosen we are his chosen people, every one of us. Now, this would have been a huge deal for the Gentile Christians especially. Because they weren't the chosen people. They weren't the Jews. But you've been adopted. And notice it's not an afterthought. 
before the creation of the world. God had already decided to adopt you. You are chosen. In Roman culture, when a baby was born, it's good for us to know this because if you hear the word adopted, you've got something in your mind what you think of. But what would those people have thought of? When the Roman culture, when a baby was born, it was set at the feet of the father. And the father had a choice to make. If the father rejected the child, he would pick it up. I mean, if he accepted the child, he would pick it up. If he rejected, he would walk away. Now, all kinds of reasons why a father in Roman culture might reject a, a child. If, if he wanted a girl and it was a boy, or if he wanted a boy and it was a girl, or maybe if it was deformed, or maybe some birthmark that wasn't pleasing. If there's anything that this father did not approve or want, he could walk away. Now, the child wasn't killed, or at least not immediately, typically. They were exposed to the elements. It was a belief that it was up to the gods to determine their fate. Look on the screen. This is a drawing from 1880. Uh, the drawings from 1880, it, it shows ancient Greece. Actually, this is in Athens, not, not Ephesus, but in Athens, uh, the agora, the marketplace. This is how big it was, okay? This is where everybody would come. They were digging in this spot there in Athens and discovered 400 baby skeletons. Help to understand what's going on here, these abandoned babies. Now, in Ephesus, remember we talked about this in the first lesson, there was this huge shopping mall, this huge complex. It's also a agora. It's the same word there. They had one also. I looked up all the pictures, though. It's just in ruins. 400 shops. It kind of gives you an idea of how big it was. This is also the same place where, if you remember from the book of Acts, where all the silversmiths would make their little idols of Diana and sell it to all the people coming in. That was kind of like the souvenir of choice. And when Paul came in telling about Jesus and that that was not the God, it created quite a stir there. So in the Ephesus area, same thing. A child would be taken to the agora, the marketplace. If the father didn't want it, it would be taken there and left. Someone might rescue the child. So it might not die, but the child might not be adopted. It would just be taken and raised as a slave or maybe a prostitute, which kind of coincides that the Agora was also noted as the second biggest slave center in the Roman world. So when you talk about, use the word adopted to these people, it meant something. It's like you were chosen, you were selected. These babies would be abandoned in the marketplace. Some of you may be thinking, fairly open and real for a moment, that abandoned may be a part of your identity. So maybe go back to that list of mistaken IDs and maybe add abandoned in there to that one. For some of you, you may feel like that's the truest thing about you. That became the lens that you saw yourself. Maybe your parents abandoned you. Maybe they never married. Maybe they divorced. Maybe there's some abandonment there. Maybe you were abandoned by a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. 
and you believe that to be the truest thing about you. Maybe you're abandoned by a friend who was supposed to be there for you. And when you needed them, they were not. Or maybe by a company that you worked for years and years and years, and then they turned their back on you. Maybe you were abandoned by a child that you did everything for, and they've turned on you. Maybe you were abandoned by the church when you really needed help. Or worse, maybe you felt abandoned by God. There are quite a few people who go through difficult times and feel abandoned. But Paul says, look, understand, no, you are adopted. The truest thing about you, if you are a Christian, is that you are a child of God. Now, there's some interesting things about the Roman adoption. If you were adopted, and this is key, you gained all the rights as that natural-born child there's no stepchild or, or, or late-in-the-picture kind of status. If you are adopted, you are in the family. You are a co-heir just like every other child. So much so that it was not uncommon in Roman culture for adults to be adopted into a family. Kind of helping with possessions and taking care of things. That was part of the Roman culture. If you were an adult and you were adopted, all your debts were wiped away. You were giving a new identity. So for Paul to use this word adopted to these people, it meant so much. He said, that's true of you. You have a new identity. All your debts are wiped away. All your sin debt. You are new in Christ. So chapter 1, that's the picture. You are adopted. Chapter 2, here's another picture. You are God's masterpiece. Verse 10 from the New Living Translation. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do it. The good things he has planned for us long ago. Masterpiece. Interesting word. Workmanship might be a word that's familiar with you. A lot of our Bible translations use that word there. I looked it up, though. That word, that Greek word, appears two times in our Bibles. Here in Ephesians and then also in uh, uh, Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, though, what he talks about there, and uses that word to talk about God's creating the universe. And how people are without excuse because they can open their eyes and see God's wonderful creation. So it makes me think, masterpiece, it's a pretty good translation there. Open your eyes and see the masterpiece God has created. Beautiful tapestry is another way that term can be interpreted. It conveys the idea that God takes all these strands, you may have heard this before, and weaves those into a beautiful tapestry. Sometimes from our perspective, all we see are the threads and it doesn't make sense. But God is working things for good, his masterpiece. He's saying, that's who you are. You are God's masterpiece. You are adopted and you are God's masterpiece. No matter what people think, no matter what people say, others may not see it in you, but God sees that in you. So maybe the challenge is to determine then who or what we're given power to identify us. What is that in you? Or who is that in you? Because we need to break hold of those old labels, that old photo ID that we just can't get past. Maybe you can relate to Jessie Rice. She wrote an article entitled, An Open Letter to My Fear of What Others Think. Dear fear of what others think, I am sick of you and it's time we broke up. 
I know we've broken up and gotten back together many times, but seriously fear of what others think, this is it, we're done. I'm tired of overthinking my uh, status updates on Facebook, trying to sound more clever, funny, and important. I'm sick of feeling anxious about what I say or do in public, especially around people I don't know that well, all in the hope that they'll like me, accept me, praise me. I run around all day feeling like a golden retriever with a full bladder. Like me, like me, like me. Because of you, fear of what others think, I go through my day with a cloud of shame hanging over my head, and I never stop acting. The spotlight's always on, and I'm center stage. And I better keep dancing, posturing, and posing, or else the spotlight will move, and I'm sure I'll dissolve into a little meaningless puddle on the ground like that witch in The Wizard of Oz. I never live up to the expectations of my imaginary audience, the ones that live only in my head, but whose collective voice is louder than any other voice in the universe. And all of this is especially evil because if I really stop and think about it and let things go quiet and listen patiently for the voice of God who made me and the Savior who died for me, in His eyes it turns out I'm actually profoundly precious, lovable. Worthy, valuable, and even just a little ghetto fabulous. And when I find my true identity in Christ, then you, fear of what others think, turn back into that tiny yapping little dog that you are. So eat it, fear of what others think. You and I are done. And no, I'm not interested in talking it through. I'm running, jumping, laughing you out of my life once and for all, or at least that's what I really, really want. God help me. The way we break free from that is by seeing ourselves as God sees us through his lens, his picture, his photo. That's the truest thing about us. And then one more, chapter 3. You're adopted, you're God's masterpiece, and God loves you. You are loved by God. Ultimately, in chapter 3, he said, this is what defines you. Look at verse 14. Here's his prayer for these Christians in Ephesus. And, and we're going to look at this more tonight in our study. But think about it. This is his prayer for them. And it's also his prayer for us. And notice the passion of this. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's praying that we'll get it. He's praying that we'll understand this, for this to sink in, for this truth to be in us, that we'll live it. Because we know you are filled with the fullness of God. That's how he describes you as his child. Filled with the fullness of God. If we could just get a glimpse of this is how God looks at the same power that created this world. The same power that brought Jesus back from the grave. This is the one who loves you. He created you. He adopted you. This is the truest thing about you. And the prayer is just that you would get it. 
that you and I would remember this, that all these other mistaken IDs, these fake IDs, these false IDs that everybody else tries to put on us, that we'll just know that's what they are. They're not real, but this one's the only one that matters. If you ever studied sociology in college, you might remember the name of Charles Cooley, Dr. Charles Cooley. He came up with the looking glass concept of identity. Here's his statement. Your self-concept comes from what you think the most important person in your life thinks of you. Your self-concept comes from what you think the most important person in your life thinks of you. Which then begs the question, who is that? Who is the most important person in your life? And what do you think they think of you? Because whoever that is, they're the ones that has your ID that you're living in and that you're giving all the power to. When Jesus becomes the most important person in your life, he's the one. Ravi Zacharias wrote a book called Why Jesus? It's another adoption story. There was a couple that they helped countless kids. They started an orphanage, and they would give them medical care. But these were kids who had severe deformities. And they also helped them to find a home, somebody to adopt them. But there's one little boy in the orphanage that had not been adopted, and he had a severe deformity. But most of the children early on were adopted, amazingly. But at age nine, he began to be aware that he was the oldest one there. Everyone else had been adopted, and he was becoming despondent. Until one day, there was a couple from Texas who had already been there and adopted one child, called back and asked if he was still there in the orphanage. And they wanted to take him too. Well, he had seen the process. He knew what would happen. Even though you got the news you're going to be adopted, it would take a while. But the first thing that would come to them would be their name. So he was waiting for his name. So finally, the day came. He was given the name Anson Josiah. Anson was a family name, Josiah from the Bible. Remember Josiah, the young king, youngest king who followed God? And from that day until the day his new parents came to get him, whenever anybody accidentally called him by his old name, nope, nope, that's not who I am, his parents called him AJ. And he made everybody call him AJ because that was his new name. That is true of us. We have all kinds of deformities. We have all kinds of sin debt. Whether we're young or old, God wants to wipe it clean and give us a new identity. So you can say, hello, I am adopted. Before God created the world, he chose me. Hello, I am God's masterpiece. And God is weaving wonderful things in my life for his glory. Hello, I am loved by God. And that is the truest thing about me. And no matter what other people think or envision or remember or remind, it doesn't matter because I am his. Let's pray. God, you are reminding us 
and you are wanting us. And as Paul was praying for us to understand who we are in you. And God, I pray that through your spirit, you will encourage us and fill us and rebuke us and remind us. Help us to not have our ID in all these things of this world. But what's truest is that we belong to you. Father, remind us of that. And give us faith that we can break up with whatever it is that's holding us back. That whatever desire or mistake or success or family or, or our background or our sin or whatever it is. May we see ourselves as in Christ. This we pray through him. And amen. This morning if we can pray for you specifically. Or if today you're ready to have your sins washed away in baptism. We have the water ready. Won't you come as we stand?